Good morning. I'd like to welcome you to Prairie View Christian Church and just thank you for being here with us this morning. Uh, first of all, I want to thank Joshua Walker for preaching for me last week. Uh, he did a really great job. It's really a blessing to have multiple people here at this church who can get up here and deliver a sound biblical sermon. And it was a huge relief for me just to be able to have a week and kind of get refreshed, get recharged, uh, do some things around here that I probably wouldn't have been able to do if I had been preparing a sermon. So I just want to thank him for that. He did a really great job with that. And then also I do want to update you a little bit on a situation that we've been filling you in on throughout uh, the past couple weeks. Ed Dowden is sitting here, and honestly I was hoping Ed would not be here today because the Washington Nationals have beaten the Cincinnati Reds three games in a row. And and I was is, is it bad for a preacher to wish someone wasn't here? But uh, I was hoping he wasn't here. But... If you've been here at church, if you've been paying attention to the weekly emails, if you've been on the church Facebook page, um, you may have heard the situation with Ed's brother. Uh, Ed's brother Ryan and his wife Mandy and their son Silas live in Virginia. And a couple weeks back, they had a house fire and lost literally pretty much everything. Uh, Everything except for what they carried out of the house with them as they left. And so they lost just about everything. And so Ed came to us, and our church decided that we were going to basically do a collection of what we could collect to give to Ed and his girlfriend Rose, and they could take out to Virginia to Ryan and Mandy and Silas. And so over the course of a week, uh, we asked people to bring in clothes. We gave some people the sizes. Um, We asked people to bring in gift cards, supplies, gas cards, anything they wanted to. And you guys as a congregation really stepped up to the plate. And we are extremely thankful for that. And Ed, on our church Facebook page, put this about a week ago when he got back from Virginia. Just wanted to let everybody know we made it back safely. Thanks so much for your support and prayers. It really meant a lot to Ryan and Mandy. Ryan told me he has started praying recently and feels like God is answering his prayers. And the reason I read that to you is that I want you as a congregation to know that you made an investment in the kingdom if you participated in that. And you may not have thought it was that big of a deal at the time, but it really was. Because God is now working in Ryan's life the way that he was not before the way that Ryan was not open to before necessarily. And so I just want to thank you as a congregation for representing our church well and representing Christ well, because through your love and through your service, big things are now possible in Ryan's life. And so I just want to thank you for that. So, yeah, give yourself a hand. So now that we're done with that, I do want to kind of get in the sermon today. Um, We're going to be reading in Mark chapter 4. But before we do that, I kind of want to give you a brief summary of where we've been so far. Mark is the earliest gospel. The first thing that happens in Mark's gospel is that John the Baptist enters the scene. And John the Baptist is basically a prophet, but instead of being like other prophets and telling people to remember what God had done in the past, John the Baptist tells people to look forward to what God is about to do in the future. And so John the Baptist goes around and he baptizes people and he does it for the forgiveness of sins and he encourages people to repent. He wants people to get ready for what God is about to do. And that thing that God is about to do is Jesus. So Jesus enters the scene, and he's baptized by John, even though he never sinned. He didn't need to repent for anything. And then he goes into the desert for 40 days, and he's tempted by Satan. But he doesn't give in to Satan. Where Adam and Eve failed, Jesus wins. Jesus doesn't give in to the temptation. And so he comes out of the desert, and he's ready and raring to go to start ministry. And so he comes, he starts preaching about the kingdom. He says that the kingdom of God is at hand, 
repent. And in the process, he starts gathering some followers. He finds a few fishermen, and he says, hey, guys, come on with me. We're going to do something cool. And they say, well, okay. And so then he finds a tax collector, and a tax collector jumps on board. And all the while, not only are individual people like fishermen and tax collectors following him, but you've also got his fame spreading. There's starting to be crowds wherever he goes because he's performing miracles. He's doing some really amazing stuff. In Mark chapter 2, we talked about how he healed Peter's mother-in-law. He cast out a demon out of a guy in the synagogue. He reached out and touched a leper and healed him physically, but also restored him spiritually and socially. And so Jesus is doing all this cool stuff, and people are starting to take notice. But the issue is people are starting to just view him as a miracle worker. They're starting to view him as a sideshow attraction, as a carnival attraction, and they're wanting to get on board with what he's doing, and Jesus doesn't want to be known as just a miracle worker. And so when that happens, he moves on to another town. And then as Joshua talked about last week, he starts having confrontations with the religious leaders. It seems as though Jesus is intentionally doing things in a way that's kind of provoking them, in a way that is kind of pushing their buttons intentionally. He could have done things differently, but he's doing things his way. And the religious leaders don't like how he's doing things. They don't like when he's doing things, doing them on the Sabbath. And so these confrontations happen. And when these confrontations happen, we see that Jesus is exposing these religious leaders for who they really are. He's exposing them as arrogant. He's exposing them as hypocritical. He's exposing them as self-righteous, as judgmental. And the religious leaders do not take kindly to that. And so they already are starting to look for ways to shut this guy up. And now if you got all that stuff, that's a pretty decent picture of Jesus' ministry. That sums up a lot of what Jesus did. I mean, miracles, confrontations with religious leaders, preaching about the kingdom, that's all good stuff. But there's one thing about Jesus' ministry that is really important that we haven't talked about yet in the Gospel of Mark, and that's what we're going to talk about today. And that's Jesus' role as a teacher. Jesus' role as a teacher, as a moral teacher. And the thing is, it seems like these days everyone loves the idea of Jesus the moral teacher. Everyone's crazy about Jesus the moral teacher. Even people who don't like anything else about Jesus, they love his moral teachings. If you look at Thomas Jefferson, one of our founding fathers, Thomas Jefferson was by no means what we would typically define as a Christian. He was not big on organized religion very much at all. But he liked Jesus' moral teachings so much that he had his own Bible called the Jefferson Bible. It would later be called the Jefferson Bible. And he had a razor and scissors, and he would go through the Bible... And he would cut out everything he didn't like, but he would leave Jesus's moral teachings because he liked that stuff. He didn't like the whole resurrection. He didn't like virgin birth. He didn't like miracles. He didn't like claims about being the son of God, but he liked moral teachings. He thought Jesus was a great moral teacher. And historian Edwin Scott Gausted said this about Jefferson. If a moral lesson was embedded in a miracle, the lesson survived in Jeffersonian scripture, but the miracle did not. Even when this took some rather careful cutting with scissors and razor, Jefferson managed to maintain Jesus' role as a great moral teacher, but not as a shaman or faith healer. So Thomas Jefferson really liked Jesus' teaching, but he wasn't crazy about everything else, so much that he cut everything else out of his Bible. And then Gandhi, famous leader Gandhi, said this about Jesus. Jesus occupies my heart, the place of one of the greatest teachers who had a considerable influence in my life. 
I shall say to the Hindus that your life will be incomplete unless you reverentially study the teachings of Jesus. So you've got guys who aren't fans of organized religion who love Jesus' teaching. You've got leaders of other religions who love Jesus' moral teaching. I had a friend in college who grew up going to Catholic school. His parents sent him to Catholic school even though they didn't believe in God because they thought Jesus' moral teachings were so good. And so it seems like everyone is crazy about these teachings. But just like two weeks ago when we talked about how if you view Jesus as nothing more than a miracle worker, you totally miss the point. If you view Jesus as nothing more than a great moral teacher, you totally miss the point. You can't just take out parts of scripture the way Jefferson did and still understand who Jesus is. Either you accept Jesus for every part of him or you don't accept any of him. And so Jesus was this moral teacher. He was a great moral teacher, but that's not all he was. And one thing that's interesting about Jesus is that Jesus teaches about 35% of the time in parables. In parables. And sometimes we think of parables and we think, oh, well, if I've grown up in Sunday school for a while, parables are ways that Jesus taught that make it easier for people to understand what he's saying. And actually today we're going to see that that really isn't always the case. The parables are not always easy to understand. In fact, they can be harder to understand than it would be if he would just come out and say what he wanted to say. And so the parables are not always easy to understand. And Jesus is kind of on the forefront of the use of parables. Up to this time, we have no written record of anybody before Jesus that used parables the way he did or used parables as much as he did. So this is something kind of new. People are still getting used to it and they're having a hard time understanding it. And as you look at the title of the sermon, Hard Sayings, the reason I called it Hard Sayings is that the word translated into English parable often means hard saying, something that's hard to grasp. It can be a statement that provokes thought, is what one person translated it as. And so it's not always as easy as we think, but there's still a point to be had. So if you have a Bible with you, open up with me to Mark chapter 4. We're going to start in verse 1. There's going to be scripture up on the screen. We have Bibles scattered out throughout some of the chairs, so feel free to use one of those as well. So Mark chapter 4. We read this. Again, he began to teach beside the sea. And a very large crowd gathered about him, so that he got into a boat and sat in it on the sea. And the whole crowd was beside the sea on the land. And he was teaching them many things in parables. And in his teaching he said to them, Listen, behold, a sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seed fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured it. Other seed fell on rocky ground where it did not have much soil, and immediately it sprang up, since it had no depth of soil. And when the sun rose, it was scorched, and since it had no root, it withered away. Other seed fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no grain. And other seeds fell into good soil and produced grain, growing up and increasing and yielding thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. And he said, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. So Jesus is teaching to this crowd, and they might have been just kind of suffocating him a little bit. There's a lot of people there. And so he decides to get into a boat and teach from a boat. Another thought would be that Jesus gets in the boat, and him standing on the water would help his voice project better. And so there's several reasons why he may have gotten into this boat. But he gets into a boat, and he starts teaching. And he starts talking about farming. And that would make sense because most of the people that he's talking to are farmers, 
they're people who live on agriculture. And even though I'm from Batesville, I know nothing about farming, so I will not claim to understand anything about farming. But Jesus gives a pretty simple farming principle. It seems pretty simple. And he says that when a farmer is sowing seed, not all of it is going to produce grain. Because not all of it is going to land in the right place. You're going to have some seed that lands in the path and it doesn't really ever get to grow. It blows away or gets taken away. You're going to have some seed that lands on good soil, but there's also rocks there. So there aren't really opportunities for the roots to grow and go deep. And then some seeds are going to land on good soil, but then there's thorns. And those are going to kind of choke it out as soon as it starts growing into the thorns. But then there's that little bit of seed that lands in the right place at the right time. And it ends up growing, and it yields 30 and 60 and 100-fold. And so if you're one of the farmers, you're probably sitting back and listening to this, and you're saying, yeah, okay, like that makes sense. I mean, I've heard that before. But what wouldn't make sense to you is the fact that Jesus says it's 30 and 60 and 100-fold. The typical yield back then that was expected, a good year, was four or five-fold. And so for Jesus to say, yeah, and this seed's going to grow 100-fold, the farmers are like, dude, you've never farmed, have you? Because... (laughs) That is not going to happen and unless you've got some sort of you know, secret that we don't have. And so the farmers, they understand where he's coming from in terms of farming, tech, you know, farming information. They get it. It makes sense. Yeah, the yield part's a little bit exaggerated, but everything else adds up. But if you're one of those farmers and this is all you have, you get that part. But what else do you get? You're sitting there and saying, yeah, this is good advice, but I don't know where he's going with this. What's the point? And if you're in his original audience, that's all you hear. You don't get the explanation that we're about to read here in a second. And so you can see how that might be a hard saying. It makes sense superficially, but it's hard to know what he's getting at on a more deeper level. So starting in verse 10, we see this. And when he was alone, those around him with the twelve asked him about the parables. And he said to them, To you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God, but for those outside, everything is in parables. So that they may indeed see but not perceive, and may indeed hear but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. So Jesus, his inside group, his inside guys come to him a little bit later and they say, Hey Jesus, um, what were you getting at earlier with the whole, you know, sowing seed and, and, and farming? Like, yeah, you know, we get it from a farming aspect, but but what's the deeper point? What are you trying to get at? And Jesus says, well, luckily for you guys, I'm going to explain it to you because you're part of my inside group, but everyone else, they don't get it explained to them. And as you read this, you think, would Jesus really teach in a way that he doesn't want people to understand? Doesn't that kind of defeat the purpose of teaching if you are intentionally teaching in a way that no one's going to learn? Kind of defeats the point. But as I look at this and I look back on teachers I've had, in high school or in college or in seminary, as I look back at that, some of the best teachers I ever had were not people who just came out and gave me the answers. The best teachers were the ones who forced me to think about what they were saying, who forced me to wrestle with what they were saying. They forced me to reflect on what they were saying. I couldn't just sit there and take notes and automatically get it. I had to really think about it and wrestle with it. And that's what Jesus is doing here. He's making people reflect on what he's saying. He's forcing them to have ears to hear. And not everyone is going to have ears to hear. Not everyone will be willing to hear. It'll go in one ear and out the other. But as we see in verse 13, he explains the parable. And he said to them, do you not understand this parable? 
How then will you understand all the parables? The sower sows the word, and these are the ones along the path where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. And these are the ones sown on rocky ground, the ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. And they have no root in themselves, but endure for a while. Then when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. And others are the ones sown among thorns. They are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. But those that were sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. So the point of the sermon is that not every seed that is planted is going to bear fruit. And Jesus is getting at the deeper meaning is that not everyone who hears what Jesus is teaching is going to get it. And that's just how it is. He says that there's some seed that they'll get it for a little while, but then something bad will happen. Hard times will come and then they won't get it anymore. They'll slowly but surely die off. Then there's some people who will get it, but then they'll be dragged away by distractions. They'll be dragged away by riches of the world, their personal gain. And those people aren't really going to bear fruit long term. But then you have those people who are going to get it. And their yield is going to be so great that it almost makes up for the other yield that isn't happening. And as I read this passage, I think there's good news and there's bad news in this parable. The good news is that it is not totally based on us if people follow Christ or not. It is not totally on us. It's not totally our responsibility. Yes, of course we have a responsibility to serve and love and tell people about Christ. But there's only so much we can do. We can pray for people. We can love people. We can be an example to people. We can help people. We can preach to them. We can do all that until we have nothing else to do and they're still not going to accept Christ. And the good news about that is that that takes some pressure off us. It's not all on us to do that. There comes a point where they have to be willing to have ears to hear. And there comes a point where God is the only person who can continue that work in them. That's the truth of it. That's the good news. But the bad news is that, well, not everyone is going to accept it. And there are people that we love. And there are people that we care about. There are friends and family members and spouses and children and neighbors and co-workers that just aren't going to get it. And that's sobering. It's sobering to hear that. But that's the truth. And that's a hard saying, not in the sense that it's necessarily hard to understand, but it's just a hard pill to swallow for us who love people and care about people and want people to come to know Christ. And it's not always going to happen. But it's not all on us either. Moving on, he tells another parable in verse 21. And he said to them, Is a lamp brought in to be put under a basket or under a bed and not on a stand? For nothing is hidden except to be made manifest, nor is anything secret except to come to light. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. And he said to them, Pay attention to what you hear. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you, and still more will be added to you. For to the one who has, more will be given. And from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. Now this parable about the lamp, verses 21 through 25, 
It's kind of a two-sided coin, this parable. On the one hand, Jesus uses the lamb to challenge those who do get it, to challenge those who have had that fruit, who are bearing fruit. He challenges them that they need to be an example to those who don't get it, that they need to be an example of what God's kingdom is all about because they are bearing fruit, and maybe the people who don't get it, maybe the people who aren't bearing fruit, maybe they will see something about that person. And they will say, you know what? I want to be a part of that. Something is different about that person. They love me the way no one else does. They serve me the way no one else does. And then maybe they'll ask why. And so on the one hand, it's a challenge to those of us who get it, to show it to other people. But then on the other hand, there's a darker side of this as well. And that's in verse 24. He says, with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. And more will be added to you. The one who has will get more. And the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And that's sobering because the idea of a light, imagery of a light in Scripture, can often be referring to judgment. And it's something that we don't like to talk about, but it's there. Jesus' teachings are not always as pleasant as we like to think they are. But Jesus' whole point is that the one who gets it, the one who has ears to hear, the one who is bearing fruit, who has me, they will be given even more. But the one who doesn't have me, they'll end up with nothing. They'll end up with nothing at all. And I don't know about you, but as I read that, and as I read the parable of the sower, it makes me want to have even more urgency to share Christ with people who don't know him. Because if peoples are attorneys are at stake, And we need to take that seriously. If we saw someone doing something that we knew was going to kill them physically, wouldn't we say something? If we saw someone walking out onto 74, wouldn't we say, hey, don't walk out onto 74. That's not a good idea. Of course we would. So why don't we do the same thing when people are living lives away from Christ, who don't know Christ, and are heading for that judgment? Why don't we seem to take that as seriously? I don't know. But Jesus is challenging us to take it seriously because this is a serious matter. And once again, this is a hard saying. It's a tough pill to swallow. But Jesus' sayings and teachings and parables and hard sayings, sometimes they're just that. Sometimes they're hard. Sometimes they're a little bit sobering. Sometimes they're convicting. But that's the beauty of Jesus' teaching. We are called to be lamps to those who don't know Christ. Because one day, our deeds will be exposed. And we will stand before God. And we will be judged by God. And there will come a point where all we can say is that, you know what? I haven't done anything to deserve to be with you. But I've thrown myself at your feet. I've trusted in the blood of Christ. And that's all really I can do. That's where we're all at. And it's a scary thought. But if Jesus didn't share it with us, it wouldn't be very loving for him to not share it with us. Finally, the last couple verses I want to look look about are two parables about the kingdom, starting in verse 26. And he said, the kingdom of God is, is, all week when I was practicing this, I messed up this part, is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how. The earth produces by itself, first the blade, then the ear, 
then the full grain in the ear. But when the grain is ripe, at once he puts in the sickle, because the harvest has come. That's parable number one. Parable number two, verse 30. And he said, with what can we compare the kingdom of God, or what parable shall we use for it? It is like a grain of mustard seed, which when sown on the ground is the smallest of all the seeds on earth. Yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. So Jesus teaches these two parables about the kingdom. And one aspect, the first parable, verses 26 through 29, is kind of about how when it comes to the kingdom of God, you don't always see it when it's growing. It's like a seed. If you have ever planted something, you don't plant it and then go out the next day and then you have a huge tree on your hands. It takes time. You go out day two, nothing's different. Day three, nothing's different. Day four, nothing's different. Day five, maybe a little tiny bit of soil has moved. Day six, nothing's different. Day seven, nothing's different. Day eight, nothing's different. And then day nine, maybe there's a little tiny peak of green coming out. And before you know it, if you're not really paying attention, you won't even notice the fact that the tree is huge. You'll look back and you'll see pictures from 20 years ago of your yard, and you'll see that tree and say, man, that tree was tiny. And then you look out now and you're like, man, it's huge. How did it get that big? I never noticed how big it was. That's exactly what's happening here with the kingdom. It doesn't always happen the way we expect it to. And if you look at the newspaper or you watch the news, you might look around and say, man, sure doesn't look like the kingdom of God is growing. But it is. It may not look like it, but it is. In verse 30, he talks about the kingdom of God being like a mustard seed. And for those people who heard Jesus speaking, to compare the kingdom of God to a mustard seed would have been insulting. Because a mustard seed was insignificant, wasn't really all that important, wasn't very impressive, wasn't very big. But when it was planted, that little, tiny, insignificant mustard seed could end up being something great, could end up being something amazing. And that's kind of how the kingdom of God works. Sometimes it's not through big, giant events. The big, giant event that we needed was the cross. And the resurrection, there's your big giant event. But everything from that point forward, most of the time, it's going to be little tiny things. Little tiny, unsuspecting things. And as I read that, I thought about this past week and back to Ryan and Mandy and Silas Dowden. I thought about them and I thought, you know what? Those people in our church who went to the grocery store and bought a gift card or went to Goodwill and bought clothes or went through their closet and find some clothes that didn't really fit them anymore. When you did that, you probably didn't think it was that big of a deal. You probably thought that what you were doing was pretty trivial. But it wasn't. Because God is now working in that person's life through the little, tiny sacrifice that one person made. Or that five people made. Sometimes the mustard seed of the kingdom of God can be you opening a door for someone. Sometimes it can be inviting that neighbor whose spouse passed away over for dinner because you know they're lonely. Sometimes it can be smiling at the person working the register at the grocery store when they've had a bad day. Little things like that, even though they seem trivial, even though they seem insignificant, can have a huge impact on what God is doing in the world. It can have a huge impact on people. Little things like that can help you be a lamp. Showing people who Christ is. 
helping them to avoid that judgment. Helping them to open their ears, to have ears to hear. Jesus' sayings are not easy, but they're loving and they're truthful. They're like a parent who, when you do something bad, says, you know, I'm not mad, I'm just disappointed. Sometimes when you're a kid, it's like, man, I just wish you would yell at me. You know, like I would feel better if you just yelled at me or spanked me or something. Because it seems harsh, but it's loving. That's what Jesus' parables are about. They're not always easy to understand. They can be hard to understand. They can be hard to swallow. But we are encouraged to have ears to hear. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for your word. And God, though sometimes your teachings are difficult. Sometimes they're difficult to understand, and then sometimes they're just difficult to put into practice, and then other times they're just difficult to to come to peace with. They seem harsh or, or, or scary. But God, your word is powerful. And God, everything you do, you do out of love for us. And even those parts about judgment and wrath and punishment, even though it's hard for us to understand, those things come from love and desire for mercy and justice. God, I pray that as we read Jesus' teachings, as we continue through the Gospel of Mark, we will learn to wrestle with them, that we will have ears to hear, that whether we follow Christ or not, we will be willing to reflect on what he's saying, to think more deeply, to have ears to hear. God, we love you. We thank you for your son, Jesus. We thank you for the cross and the resurrection. We ask these things in his name. Amen. After the service is over, we're going to have a couple of our elders standing on the side of the room. So if you have any questions about becoming a follower of Christ, questions about our church, questions about anything at all, ways we can pray for you, don't hesitate to talk to one of those guys. Jesus.